All right, well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you all. And uh, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1? Now, let me just say this, as we've already said, the emphasis of Peter's first epistle was to encourage believers who were going through, you know, sufferings, persecutions at the hands of unbelievers, you know, those in the world, those outside the church. And so he wanted to write them and encourage them because that's important, that we encourage each other. And so Peter, being a pastor, wrote his first epistle as a, an epistle of encouragement to believers who were suffering. The emphasis of his second epistle is to warn believers about the dangers of false teachers and counterfeit Christians who had basically infiltrated the church and were being used by the devil to destroy the church from the inside. You know, as we've talked about, the devil's strategy of if you can't beat them, join them. Remember what Jesus said? Against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. Satan was listening to that. Thought, if I can't beat them, then I'll join them. And, uh, of course, that idea is as old as the church itself. In fact, it actually predates the birth of the church. Because Jesus talked about it in a parable he gave. You don't have to turn there. You can look it up later on. But a parable he gave in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, called the parable of the tares and the wheat. He talked about how the devil would sow inside the church his counterfeit Christians. These would be people that were wolves in sheep's clothing, many of them. And he would sow them inside the church, and especially the false teachers and false prophets. And because they are in the church, they have effectively neutralized much of the power of the church. They have corrupted the witness of the church in these last days, and they're destroying our effectiveness in the world. That's where we are. That's where we are as the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. I'm not saying every church is like this. I'm just saying Christendom. And the Lord talked about this in the book of Revelation. In the seven letters of the seven churches, the last four, he said, and hold fast till I come, signifying they were going to be around when the Lord came. And Laodicea doesn't paint a real comforting picture of the church in the last days. Self-centered. Uh, rich but yet poor spiritually, thinking they were so right, so blessed, but poor, blind, miserable, wretched, naked, and so on, as Jesus described them, totally lacking self-awareness, totally thinking, hey, everything's fine, we're good. In fact, look at how God's prospering us. Would God prosper a church that wasn't really right with him? No, but the devil would. The devil would and has and is. So Peter wants us to be aware that in the church there are those who are really false Christians. Sometimes they know they're false Christians and they're here to cause trouble. Other times they think they're saved. But he wants us to be on the lookout for false believers because they are being used to water down and neutralize the church's effectiveness. But let me say this, and this is where it gets a little painful. The first place, listen, the first place we need to look for false Christians in the church, are you ready? It's in our own hearts. In our own hearts. Guys, careful self-examination to determine the genuineness of our faith is not only critical. Listen, it's commanded in Scripture. Second Peter 1.10, he said, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. 
Be ever more diligent to make sure that you're really a Christian. Do everything you can to make sure you really have saving faith. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, Paul said, If we judge ourselves, the idea is if we judge ourselves now, you know, not giving ourselves a pass, oh, I'm fine, I go to church, everything's great. No, no, examining, is there really fruit coming from my life? Do I really have Christ in my heart? Is there any evidence of that? Am I thinking differently? Are my values different? Is my worldview different? And so on. Well, the idea is judge yourself now, Paul said, so you won't have to be judged by the Lord someday. Now, again, as a pastor, Peter is painfully aware that in any given church on any given Sunday, the congregation will contain people who think they're saved but yet are not. We have them here at Calvary. Some of them I know. Others I don't. But God knows the firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. But this is heavy on Peter's mind. You can see it in this first chapter. And that's why he transitions so quickly from talking about the blessings that are ours in Christ in verses 2 to 4 to a warning directed at all professing Christians to make sure They are really in Christ. You see, he wants to shake up churchgoers. Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, said it was his job as a preacher to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. Peter's going to afflict the comfortable, but he needs to do it, okay? He wants to shake up churchgoers so that they examine themselves honestly as to whether or not they're really saved. And guys, every faithful pastor has to address this issue from time to time from the pulpit, as Peter is doing here. He's faithful. Every faithful shepherd has got this burden on their heart. And they always want to, from time to time, shake up the congregation a little bit by challenging people in the chairs, pews, whatever, to examine themselves to make sure they really have Jesus Christ in their heart, that they're not just going through the motions, that they just profess to know God, but their lives tell a different story, as uh, Paul pointed out in Titus 1.16. Every faithful pastor has to address this issue at times because he doesn't want anyone in his church to have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on the day of judgment and hear Jesus say to them, I never knew you, Depart from me into everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. I hope and pray, as a pastor, I never see anyone that was in our congregation have to stand before Jesus and hear those words. I hope and pray that never happens. Uh, It really haunts me. But if it does happen, they're not going to be able to look over at me and say, Pastor, why didn't you tell me? I went to your church for years and you never told me the gospel. No, it's not going to happen. Because I believe in teaching everything that God has said, the whole counsel of God. That way we don't miss anything. We don't overlook anything. I don't preach hobby horse topics that I like and yet I you know, don't, don't teach what people want to, need to hear, I should say. And so Peter is burdened about this. And that's why he started out his epistle by encouraging us, actually the Greek is commanding us, to stay close to the Lord so that his character will grow in us and bear fruit through us, the fruit of godliness 
and Christ-likeness. He talks about that in verses 5 to 7. We've already covered that. Not only if, you, if we continue to focus on staying close to Jesus, where his life is being reproduced in us, the fruit is coming, the fruit of Christ-likeness primarily. Not only will that uh, help to guard us from the devil's condemnation. The devil really can't condemn you. I mean, he'll try. But he really can't condemn you if you're living a holy life. A Christian who's living a carnal life, well, they're, they're fodder for the devil, right? And he loves that. Because if he can get you to live a carnal life, he can beat you up with condemnation, take you out of the race, cause you to fall by the wayside, give up, uh, you know, whatever. You're, you're no longer a threat to his kingdom. If you're living a holy life, as Peter encourages in verses 5 to 7 primarily, well, it's going to it'll keep the devil from being able to condemn us. But it will also help to assure us that our faith is real and our salvation is sure. And that's what Peter's really getting at now, okay? So in verse 10 we read, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Listen, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter is saying, we're just reviewing a little bit from last week. Peter is saying, if we keep living godly lives of moral virtue as believers, look, we're never going to stumble into doubt, despair, or fear with regard to the genuineness of our salvation, nor our place in heaven that's waiting for us. Our inheritance that Peter talked about to start this epistle, waiting for us, that fades not away, and so on. That's one of the blessings and reasons why we should walk close to the Lord. As we said last week, I'm a firm believer, if you've really given your heart to Christ, and only the Lord knows, but if you've really given your heart to Christ, I believe you are saved forever. So Satan can't, if you really are a Christian, he can't get you back, okay? You've passed from death to life, and in my mind, scripturally speaking, it's a one-way door. You're born of the Spirit. How can you be unborn? So if you really have received Christ into your heart, you are a child of God and you will be a child of God forever. Satan understands that. So the next best thing for him to do is try to so condemn you that you don't think you're a Christian, pointing out all your faults and flaws. Because if Satan can get you to think you're not saved, well, you're not going to live like a victorious Christian. And so, again, you're no longer a threat to his kingdom. That's why it's so important to put on the helmet of salvation. Know that once you're saved, you're always saved. And you go ahead and you begin to live your life every day for the Lord's glory to draw close to him and so on. Now, verse 11. If you do all these things, Peter said, and keep walking close to the Lord and the fruit of godliness is coming forth from your life, you're going to have an entrance into heaven. Verse 11, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've said this before. I have run into people over the years, and their only goal in the Christian life is just making it to heaven. And that's all they want, really. And so, you know, you see them living kind of a carnal life, and you challenge them with it, and I'm saved, and that's all I care about. Well... That's sad because the Lord is allowing us to use our time, talents, resources right now to lay up treasures in heaven. That will be eternal. We don't have to do that. We can still lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. 
Not a very wise thing to do, because as Jesus said, moth and rust can destroy, thieves can break in and steal, that kind of thing, okay? The you know, stock market could crash, your 401 could go away, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, riches are fleeting is the idea. On earth, in heaven, they're eternal. I like what author and commentator William McDonald said. He said, and I quote, Not only is there a safety in constant spiritual progress, there is also the promise of a richly provided entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter refers here not to the fact of our entry, but to the manner of it. The only basis of admission to the heavenly kingdom is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But some will have more of an abundant entry uh, into heaven than others. There will be degrees of, of reward. And the rewards uh, are here said to depend on the degree of one's conformity to the Savior, end quote. To your Christ-likeness. All right, Second Peter 1, verse 12. For this reason... I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. He said, I will not be negligent to remind you always. Look, any good teacher knows that students learn best and better retain what they learn through repetition. That was kind of the idea behind catechisms and uh, these uh, statements of faith that were uh, catechisms in the church and kids that were uh, just kind of a succinct presentation of various doctrines or what uh, Christianity is all about or whatever it might be. And uh, these catechisms were repeated uh, by uh, young children in Sunday school oftentimes. And as they were repeated, the children were catechized. They were instructed. And of course, it stayed with them because of the repetition. Peter says, look, I, I want to remind you of some things you already know. But it's good that we take the time from time to time to remind ourselves of what we already know. Because sometimes we have a tendency to forget. So I will, I will not be negligent to remind you always. The word established, he, said, he goes on to say, and you know, that you be established, right? The word established in the truth, he said, uh, the word established is the same Greek word translated strengthen. In Luke 22:32, remember the context. Jesus has just told the disciples that um, they're going to be scattered soon. He's just hours from the cross, and you know, forsake him. They would all forsake him. And Peter said, "Though all of these guys forsake you, I'll never forsake you." And Jesus said, "Well, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to have denied me three times." And Peter is, is, is heartbroken that the Lord would even say something like that. But, of course, the Lord knew what he was talking about. And he went on to say, But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, Peter, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, listen, strengthen your brothers. That's that Greek word. I believe Peter is obeying the words of Christ here. I believe that the command that Jesus gave him to strengthen his brethren, he is doing right here. And has tried to do throughout all of his writings. Strengthening us but reminding us of the basics of our Christian faith. The basics of the Christian life. Encouraging us to hang in there. Perseverance is also very important. The Greek word hupomone. Uh, hanging in under pressure. Not bailing when things get rough. Okay. The New Testament translates. Excuse me. The NLT I should say. Translates verse 12 this way. Therefore. 
I will always remind you about these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. Peter acknowledges that his readers had been taught New Testament doctrine, not the least of which was through the letters of Paul, which had been circulating through the church over the years, and Christians were uh, consuming Paul's writings and, 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 and focusing on his teaching and doctrine. And Peter actually mentions this in chapter 3 of uh, 2 Peter 3, verse 15. He said, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. So Paul's written uh, letters that you have read that have benefited you greatly in doctrine and so on, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand. I'm glad Peter said that. Paul's a smart guy. I'm just a fisherman. Uh, Paul's a scholar, you know. Man, he says a lot of great stuff under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some of it's a little hard to understand, but it's good stuff. Good stuff, okay? And uh, which untaught and unstable people twist. So there's always going to be those who uh, take God's word and they want to twist it and pervert it, all right? Um, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Now, Peter, in saying this in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, is kind of reminding them of what he had said earlier in chapter 2. We'll study that, uh, God willing, starting next week, okay? So back to 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Once again, he said, For this reason I will not neg be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Uh, you, know, you know doctrine. You know New Testament doctrine. Uh, verse 13, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you. The word tent, of course, is Peter's way of referring to his physical body. His physical body. A tent isn't a permanent structure like a brick-and-mortar house, we'll say. It's only a temporary place where people can live. I saw something a few years ago about a young couple, uh, and they were married, and they were living in a tent. Uh, why? I think part of it was they, they liked the outdoors, okay? And I don't think they wanted to spend money renting a house or owning a house. And so for years... They lived in this, well, it was kind of large, but not very large, canvas tent, I think it was. But you know what? That wears on you. And uh, after a few years, they decided it was time to move into a permanent structure. And uh, I thought, I can't believe they made it that long. Okay? I mean, you know, I used to like camping out. Not so much anymore. But I used to like camping out for a day or two. Uh, five or six years, I don't think so. Anyways, a tent was never intended to be a permanent place for you to live in just a kind of a temporary one and um, the bible likens our physical bodies to a tent a tent why because it is not the permanent house quote unquote that god has ultimately designed for us to live in someday this is a tent someday our spirit is going to shed this tent because it's wearing out right tents wear out don't they and god's got a permanent structure for us our spirit to move into. It's called our glorified body. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, Paul talks about this. He said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Talking about our glorified body, of course, which he mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 
uh, where we talked about this mortal must put on immortality, this corruption must put on incorruption. Talked about how we're going to move into this uh, this new mansion one day, this, this glorified body where our spirit will live forever, uh, a body that will never get sick, will never get tired, will never get hungry. Oh, we'll still eat in heaven because uh, that's good. I mean, it's, we fellowship, okay? Uh, so, but we won't need to. The Lord Jesus Christ ate after he rose from the dead with his glorified body. He didn't need to. It was all about the fellowship, okay? So, you know, just if you're worried about, you know, heaven being a place where there's no more tacos or, uh, uh, I don't know, what kind of food, you know, angel food cake, a lot of angel food cake, uh, no devil's food cake, all right? So if you like that, give with the, give with the program, okay? But anyways, um, he said in verse 13, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, listen, to stir you up by reminding you of these things. Uh, the term stir you up is a compound word in the Greek meaning to arouse completely or to thoroughly awaken. And the idea is awaken from lethargy, drowsiness, or sleep. Now, I am convinced as a pastor, there are those in the church that have learned to sleep with their eyes open. I mean, I see them on Sunday morning and their eyes are open. But honestly, I don't think I'm getting through. Okay? But, but there are some Christians who are become a little lethargic in their walk, uh, a little catatonic, if we can put it that way, spiritually speaking. Uh, but even true Christians, even true Christians can become sluggish. And again, lethargic in their walk with the Lord, even fall asleep in the light by not remaining vigilant and watchful for the Lord's return. I'll read you three passages really quickly. You can write the address down. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. Paul said, so be on guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Good advice. Hebrews uh, 6, verse 12, do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then one of my favorites, Romans 13, 11, uh, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. Talking, he's talking to Christians. Look at the context. He's talking to believers. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Well, that's true, isn't it? I mean, I first believed almost 40 years ago. I mean, we're getting close now, all right? Gotta be. But look, the way Christians remain watchful, and we see that admonition all the way through the New Testament, but a way, the way a Christian remains watchful is by knowing what to watch for. The signs of Christ's return is the idea. And the way we learn what to watch for is by studying what God told us to look for in the way of signs that would precede Christ's return. It's called prophecy. Prophecy. The reason so many Christians are sleeping in the light is because they're attending churches that do not teach prophecy. You cannot stay awake, alert, and vigilant if you don't know what signs precede the Lord's coming. You know, and I've heard Christians say, oh, yeah, I believe the Lord's coming back maybe in a thousand years. I don't know if it's going to be a thousand minutes. It could be right now in a few seconds. We don't know. So what do we look for? Well, there's plenty of things that the Bible tells. There's over 300 prophecies of Jesus' first coming and over 500 of his second coming. The Bible is loaded with things to look for. In fact, you can't pick up a, a paper today 
you still got, get the paper, I don't, I go online, but you can't pick up a paper today without seeing prophecies fulfilled right before your very eyes. I was telling you guys years ago about when the kids were little, I think it was 96, we took our first trip to Disney World, okay? Don't hold that against us. We took our first trip to Disney World. And of course, what is Disney World? It's about maybe 1,400 miles, okay, from Chicago. So we started out, you know, and we're going along, going along for a long, long way. You know, maybe 800, 900 miles before we ever saw the first sign for Disney World. Oh, that was, that was exciting, right? Drive a little more, maybe another couple hundred miles, and then we saw another sign. And then another sign. And the closer we got to, I'm not kidding, you, if you've been there, you know what I mean. The closer we got to Disney World, the more the signs kept coming. In fact, until they were almost on top of each other. It was amazing. How you could miss Disney World would be a mystery to me. All you got to do is look at the signs. Well, same is true with the Christian life. The closer we get to Christ's return, the more the signs are coming. And they're almost on top of each other now. For a Christian to miss the Lord's return and the Lord catch them by surprise, there's no reason for that. It's laziness. It's a lack of vigilance. It's the very thing the Lord said a wicked servant does who does not keep an eye on his master's coming. We don't want to be the wicked servant. So prophecy. We'll come back to that in just a minute if we have time. Prophecy. But uh, again, verse 13, Peter said, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, verse 14, knowing that shortly, I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Well, here Peter is remembering what the Lord Jesus told him about how his life would end. Remember this? Turn to John 21. You remember this. After Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his guys. And uh, after he restored Peter, who had denied him three times, then he says to Peter, eventually, come, follow me. And uh, Peter looks at John and says, uh, what about this guy? And uh, Jesus, don't worry about him. I'll take care of him. You follow me, right? But verse 18, John 21, verse 18, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, Peter, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. In other words, there's a cross in your future, Peter. Follow me. Unlike what so many are teaching today about prosperity in your future, complete health in your future, uh, the biggest house in town in your future the most successful business in your future. The Lord Jesus said there's a cross in our future. And it may not be a literal cross. It probably will be. For Peter, it was. He died by crucifixion. Tradition says that as they were about to nail him to the cross, he said, I am not worthy to die in the same manner as my Lord. Will you please crucify me upside down? Peter went to a literal cross. Jesus said, you can't be one of my disciples until you pick up your cross figuratively and follow me every day. What is that? People say, oh, my cross. My, my cross is my husband. 
Oh, he's such a, he's a lot of work. You know, he's my cross. Oh, my cross is my mother-in-law. Oh, you don't know this woman. Oh, my God. My mother-in-law is great, by the way. My mother-in-law is great. I'm not speaking from experience. But, but there are some out there who are not so great. And, um, but that's not what he's talking about. He wasn't talking about, you know, anyone in your life. He was talking about a life of self-denial. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, when you were a young guy, you did whatever you wanted to do. When you're going to get older, you're going to do what you're not going to want to do, which is to die literally for me. No, our flesh doesn't want to die. Our flesh doesn't want to pick up our cross and follow in Jesus' footsteps. A life of self-denial. I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I do always those things that please my Father. That's the heart of a true Christian. It was the heart of Christ. And those of us who are true followers of his, that's what he's saying when he says to us, take up your cross. And you got to deny yourself. You can't be a Christian, really who gives Jesus lip service, and yet still, you're in control of your life. And everything you want to do, you do, and then just stick Jesus' name to it, as if you're doing it for his glory. I want to make a lot of money. I want to do it because I want to give money to the church, though. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. Okay? He doesn't need your money. I mean, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. Okay? think a few bucks that I throw in the collection plate every Sunday is going to, oh, God's like, wow, look at what they gave this week. Now I can keep doing my work. Yeah, some, some Christians feel that way. That's obviously wrong, right? But, but verse 15, 2 Peter 1, 15. Moreover, I will be careful. See, I, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to die soon. The Lord has showed me that. But I want to be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. The Greek word means departure or exodus. Peter's spirit was going to exit or was going to um, make its exodus from this human body and from this world into the presence of the Lord, right? Warren Worsby said, and I quote, Peter knew he was going to die. So he wanted to leave behind something that would never die, the written word of God. His two epistles became a part of the inspired scriptures, and they have been ministering to the saints for centuries. Men die, but the word of God lives on. It is possible that Peter was also alluding to the gospel of Mark. Maybe you didn't know that. Most Bible scholars believe that the Spirit used Peter to give John Mark some of the data that became his gospel. One of the church fathers, Papias, said that Mark was Peter's disciple and interpreter. If we did not have a dependable, listen, written revelation, the church would be at the mercy of men's memories. People who pride themselves on having good memories should sit on the witness stand in a courtroom. It is amazing that three perfectly honest witnesses can, with good conscience, give three different accounts of an automobile accident. Our memories are defective and often selective. We usually remember what we want to remember, and often we distort even that. Fortunately, we can depend on the written word of God. It is written, and it stands written forever. We can be saved through the living word, nurtured by it, and guided and protected as we trust and obey it. End quote. The written word of God. 
Well, Peter builds on that. Verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but listen, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, guys, in this verse, Peter is talking about the experience that he had, along with John and James, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Cunningly devised fables literally means sophisticated lies or well-crafted, deceitful fabrications. The Greek word translated fabrications is a word we get our word myth, myths from. Myth. Okay? Verse 17, still talking about this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him, that was Peter, James, and John, and of course the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? And um, he said, you know, the Father gave honor and glory to the Son. When a voice came to him from the excellent glory, that would be the Shekinah glory that was hovering above that mount, God the Father said at one point, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Look, what Peter saw on the Mount of Transfiguration was fantastic unbelievable but still true but still true absolutely true let's read the account turn to matthew 17 matthew 17 verse 1 now after six days jesus took peter james and john his brother led them up on a high mountain by themselves probably mount Hermon, uh, where the jordan river begins up there in the area of caesarea philippi um, some say it was Mount Tabor. That's the traditional site that's in the middle of the land. About 1,800 feet high is Mount Tabor. The gospel said it was a high mountain. Uh, Hermon is 9,000 feet high. It doesn't mean they went all the way up to the top, but it was, it was high, okay? And so Jesus took these guys up there. Verse 2, he was transfigured. The Greek word is where we get our word metamorphosis from. He was transfigured before them. Same kind of a process as when a butterfly, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly through the process of metamorphosis. In other words, Jesus Christ basically turned inside out, uh, you might say. Uh, his glory, which, is veiled, which was veiled by his humanity, was kind of removed like a cloak. And the glory that was his on the inside as God uh, was allowed to shine through briefly. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud, the Shekinah glory, overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Well, that was significant because Moses and Elijah, I'm not going to get into this. There's a lot we could talk about. But Moses represented the law, Elijah the prophets. The law and the prophets is what we call our Old Testament or the Jewish people call their Tanakh, their holy scriptures. And what the father is saying, look, hear Jesus now. Okay, you've listened to Moses and Elijah all your life. You've studied their writings. But now you are, because he, Jesus Christ, has come to bring the new covenant. Okay? Therefore, hear him. Hear him. Not that we shouldn't study the Old Testament. It's just that the New Testament has now come 
and uh, been the fulfillment of everything God had spoken or promised in the Old Testament. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Would to God every Christian would see no one but Jesus only. Too many celebrities in the church today which are standing in front of Jesus. And so the people don't see Jesus. They see these showmen, these, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and so they, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Well, uh, Peter was writing many years after that fact, and so he's talking about this event, right? This was quite a powerful experience. Quite a powerful experience. Attested to, not by one or two, but by three eyewitnesses. Eyewitness testimony, guys, is extremely important. Extremely important. In fact, our whole system of jurisprudence is built on eyewitness testimony. Even as God established in His law. We talked about it Sunday. Uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. God said, You must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one eyewitness. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, at least. Look, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just to kind of dig a little detour quickly. The resurrection of Jesus Christ had hundreds of eyewitnesses. Hundreds of eyewitnesses. Not, not that were there that Sunday morning when he stepped from the tomb. But he appeared to many people after his resurrection, before he ascended back to the Father. That was 40 days, right? He stayed around 40 more days after he rose from the dead and so on, appeared to different disciples, teaching them things about the kingdom, Acts 1 tells us, and eventually he was taken up uh, to uh, ascend back to his Father. Okay? But there were hundreds of eyewitnesses. In fact, Christians who are historians, and I've heard this from more than one, have said the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the, the greatest events or uh, in human history attested to is the idea. Uh, more people have seen and bore witness that they saw the risen Christ. They, more eyewitnesses than, than many, many events in history that we would never assume were suspect. We, we, you know, how many people watched Washington cross the Delaware? Well, not as many as saw Jesus, the risen Christ, right? Yeah, we don't question whether Washington crossed the Delaware. I mean, there's no, you didn't take a selfie. There was no, you know, hey guys, smile, you know. Everything's online now, so, you know. But in those days, they didn't, they didn't do that, okay? Um, but, you know, a lot of people testified that they saw the, many eyewitnesses, in fact, here's something, you, you already know this. The word for witness in the Greek is martyr race. We get the word martyr from that Greek word. Uh, because to be a witness for Christ back then, to testify that you saw the risen Christ, probably meant you were going to be killed for your faith. You become a martyr. So the word witness, martyr, became synonymous. Okay, Somebody who saw Christ risen from the dead and then died for their faith, they kind of became synonymous terms. But turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Just think you should see this. Because Paul talks about those that saw the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, 
He said, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. Then by the twelve, after that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, some have died in Christ. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. But Peter was an eye, and, and let me just say this to you about what Paul just said, okay? One of the greatest, most powerful evidences to the fact that Jesus Christ did in fact rise from the dead and people saw the risen Christ was how many were willing to go to violent deaths when they could have recanted and not been killed by the Roman government, but nobody did. Um, Satan is a very astute judge of human nature. He's studied us for a long time. He said in the book of Job, talking to the Father, skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. When a person's life is on the line, they will lie, they'll throw others under the bus, they'll do whatever they have to do to survive because self-preservation kicks in one of the strongest drives we have. And as such, uh, when a man or woman's life is on the line, they will do whatever they have to do to uh, escape death. Don't you think if they had all made this story up, which is what Schoenfeld proposed in the Passover plot, 1968 book bestseller, Passover plot, his contention was they all made the story up. They all got together and said, oh, no, no. You know, he, Jesus was killed by the Roman government, Schoenfeld believes, okay, as, as the Bible says. But he didn't rise from the dead. He wasn't God. So the disciples got together and concocted this story. And they all you know, signed on to it. And then we're going to tell everybody that we, you know, we saw he did rise from the dead. And we saw it. We, we saw the risen Christ. And yet when they all started to be put to death for their eyewitness testimony, and the Roman government would have let any of them walk if they would only have recanted their testimony that they had seen the risen Christ. Not one of them did. That's got to be the most powerful evidence of the Lord's resurrection. One of many, but one of the most powerful, I think. Peter was an eyewitness of both the resurrected Christ and the second coming glory of Christ, which we read about in Matthew 17. And uh, the other Gospels, I think, except for John, uh, also talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was an eyewitness to that event, the second coming of Christ. A little preview of the second coming glory. And yet he acknowledges that eyewitness testimony isn't infallible. Now it's important, especially in a court of law, okay, to establish uh, the guilt or innocence of a person. Again, our whole system of jurisprudence is built on eyewitness testimony. It's not very reliable, though. I saw, and this goes along with something I just read, but I saw uh, several years ago, and I forgot what, what the context was, but I saw how they were trying to prove this very thing. Uh, you know, uh, researchers and, and uh, scientists. So they uh, had a bunch of people in a room. And there was a screen in front of them. And they showed this uh, automobile accident. You know, you see the cars and, you know, and you, buildings and people are walking on the streets. And all of a sudden you see, boom, the car crash. 
you know? And then the screen went dark. Then they interviewed people privately to find out what they saw. You can't believe how things were, I mean, you know, one saw a brown car. Oh, no, it was a red car. Uh, you know, it was amazing how, you know, there, there, were, there were, you know, three people walking on the sidewalk when the crash happened. No, 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 I saw two. And the point was that eyewitness testimony, although it's important, is not always reliable. Definitely not infallible. And that's, I'm going to have to leave it there because... We're out of time. But that really is what Peter is using. That's his argument. I was there. I saw the Lord Jesus in his second coming glory. But you know what? Eyewitness testimony, although important, is not always reliable. We have an even more sure word. And he's going to get into that. Well, we're going to get into it. He already got into it years ago. We'll we'll get into it um, next time. And um, guys, experiences can be invigorating, exhilarating, depending if they're good experience. I'm talking about something good from God. I mean, that transfiguration experience was from God. And I'm not against uh, experiences if they're from God. You cannot live on experiences. You need the milk and the meat that comes from God's Word. Some churches have built their entire churches on experiences. And you go to their services, and man, is there a lot of excitement. People are running, jumping, diving over pews. As somebody has said, when you go to church, the issue is not how high you jump. It's how straight you walk when you land. The only way you're going to walk is if you're fed the Word of God. Because you can come to a service and roll around and bark like animals and do these crazy things that we saw uh, in the church for years, uh, and you know what? People walk out of the church and they have, they have learned nothing that will help them to live a holy life, a fruitful life for the Lord. They have learned, it's been, all been about emotions. And Peter wants us to understand, I had a great experience. That's not enough. You need the sure word of God. So we'll talk about that next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth. We thank you, Lord, that you wrote it down for us, that we not... Forget it. And Lord, give us grace in these last days to feed on your word faithfully, to hunger for it more than our daily food, that, Lord, we might be filled with your truth, so filled with your light that it would come radiating out of us, Lord, to a dark world. So, Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.